LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, a neuroscientist's guide to understanding your brain. Afternoon. Okay, good afternoon, sir. You've got your scorecard. This is a clip from a documentary that ran on the UK's Channel 4 back in 2017. The guy with the scorecard, his name is Everton Thomas. Take a seat. Thank you. Okay, let's give it a go. Everton is sitting in a nondescript office about to take an oral exam for which he's been studying 35 hours a week for the last 18 months. It's a test with the potential to change his career to change how he's able to provide for his family, to change his life. Right, question one. Whereabouts is Kensington Village? Kensington Village. Everton purses his lips, shakes his head. Oh, sorry, Mum, I'm not seeing that. No, you sure? Okay. This test Everton is taking is called The Knowledge, capital T, capital K, and he needs to pass it in order to fulfill his dream of becoming a licensed London cab driver. He has to demonstrate that he's memorized the names and locations of 100,000 landmarks like Kensington Village, as well as the layout of London's 20,000 streets. And so far, it's not going great. But fortunately for Everton, the examiner gives him another chance. This time, she wants him to describe turn for turn the most direct route between two random locations. So yeah, so London Edition Hotel to Battersea Reach. I leave on the... I leave on the right, leave on the right Bernard Street, left into East Castle Street, left Well Street, forward Berwick Street, right into Knoll Street, forward Great Marlborough Street, left into Regent Street, forward into Westbridge Road, forward into Battersea Square, forward Vicarage Trezent, forward into Lombard Road, right into York Road. He's nearly completed the imaginary journey, but there's a problem. He's at a crossroads, literally, and he cannot remember if it's legal for him to turn right or if he needs to keep going and use the roundabout up ahead. He hesitates, zooms in on his mental map of London, and then... Uh, forward and comply, York Circus, leave by York Road, left into Trinity for driving along. All right, we started off a little bit wobbly, but we brought it back, so well done. Oh, well thank done. you, thank you. How did he do it? How did he pass the knowledge? By changing his brain. If you were to put Everton through an MRI, you'd probably find that the tail of his hippocampus, the part of his brain that's responsible for spatial memory, is unusually large. Why? Because neuroscientists have found that all those hours London cabbies spend memorizing the city streets causes the spatial memory region of their brains to get bigger, physically larger, which, if you think about it, is wild. It means that our brains are like muscles. With the right exercise, they can grow. But there's a catch. Keep studying Everton's brain scan, and again, assuming his brain looks like those of other cabbies, you might notice something odd. The tail of his hippocampus may be oversized, but the head of his hippocampus is likely to be smaller than average. To acquire the knowledge, one part of his brain had to grow, but that caused another region to shrink. And that shrinkage comes at a cost. 
It means that while cabbies like Everton can get you from the London Edition Hotel to Battersea Reach without a wrong turn, their powers of recall in other areas, like drawing complex figures from memory or remembering a long list of words, aren't nearly as strong. For Dr. Chantel Pratt, a neuroscientist at the University of Washington, this story illustrates a key principle of brain engineering. There's no such thing as normal. Our brains are all built differently, and not just that, they change depending on what we ask them to do. They're shaped by our experiences. And this is a liberating discovery. Chantel uses an automotive analogy, which I appreciate. You can be born with a brain that resembles a Volkswagen Beetle, but give it the right experiences, ask it to perform the right tasks, and you can transform that VW bug into a Ford F-150. Her second takeaway is a little less rosy. Sure, we can re-engineer our brains, but doing so has trade-offs, costs and benefits. Bulking up the region that handles spatial memory comes at the expense of something else. And so before you decide that you'd rather have an F-150 brain than a Beetle, you've got to ask yourself, what am I trying to do, off-road or parallel park? To help answer that question, Chantel has written a new book called The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. It's a highly readable primer on how your brain works and what you can do to get the most out of it. Our curator, Adam Grant, called it the smartest, clearest, and funniest book I've ever read about the brain. I could not agree more. Reading the book and speaking with Chantel changed the way I think about my brain, its strengths, its weaknesses, its talents and quirks. I have a whole new appreciation for those 86 billion neurons upstairs. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Dr. Chantel Pratt, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Chantel, you have been doing something pretty unusual. You've been studying the variation in human brains in a field that has historically been focused on the typical human brain. And it's amazing to me that the field of neuroscience has not been, been more focused on brain variation until now. Do you find this surprising? And, and why do you think that is? I think after 25 years, I find it less surprising. Certainly when I entered the field, my goal was to understand what makes us unique, what makes us different, what makes the things that we think are weird about ourselves, what creates those things. And so the fact that that was not a part of our general methods or our theories was really mm -hmm. surprising to me. And you quote the cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker, who's, who's been a guest on the show, as saying, quote, all normal people have the same physical organs, and we all surely have the same mental organs. And, and that's, I guess, the, the sort of conventional view, which seems to really rub you the wrong way. <laughs> uh, do, do you think uh, Pinker uh, still believes that? And why, why is he wrong? It does rub me the wrong way because... The idea here is that normal is is one thing 
and that it's the same in everybody. And in fact, normal is a space with a lot of variability. You can't define what's normal and abnormal without understanding how people in the normal range vary. And so, yes, when I read that, I thought like, this is so not true. Not only have I dedicated my entire career trying to explain these differences, but I think to say that they're not meaningful is really, it's subjective. We'll say, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> now, it seems to me now, having had the benefit of, of, of having read your book, that there are two problems with this kind of conventional view. I mean, the first is just that it's, it, it's an inadequately nuanced understanding of what's happening, mm -hmm. right, of our brains and, and how we use them. But there's also this problem of kind of the downstream cultural consequences of believing that we all have very similar brains in terms of how it affects how we teach, how we hire, how we collaborate. Do you feel that this is a very important kind of complication of our understanding of neuroscience that you're trying to get out there? Yes. I think complication is a really good word because one thing that I would also say is understanding the brain as an average, as a statistical average, is already really hard. So when you try and understand variability, it blows up the complication of the problem in a huge way. And, and to be honest, I think part of why we haven't been talking about differences is not just because of the pragmatics, because it's more expensive, because you have to study lots and lots more people, but because we haven't had enough, I guess, information or space to talk about differences as not necessarily meaning better or worse. I think mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. so much fear, and I think it's well-placed fear, around talking about a brain being different. I think when people hear that their brain makes them do X or that their brain works like this, they mistakenly think that that means necessarily that they were born that way or that it can't change. You know, your mm -hmm, brain mm -hmm. is is a dynamic, adaptable organ. Your brain is not the same now as it was when we started this conversation. Okay, those are probably very minute changes, but it's it's you and your brain are dynamic. We know this. Like if you think about yourself as a teenager or a child or yourself in the morning and the evening, you can intuit that you don't always work the same and your brain is changing and it reflects those changes. So I think a big part of, I do agree with you that thinking we all work this way and here's how to manage somebody and here's how to connect or communicate and here's how to parent. I think we are absolutely missing abilities to understand one another when we don't talk about these fundamentally different ways that different brains understand, operate, and decide in the world. And I think in this world where we're always trying to kind of use neuroscience to improve our lives, I think we also don't really understand the costs and benefits of different ways of being. And a lot of the things that I find really frustrating about my brain, like mm -hmm. inability to focus on something, you know, to not be uh, distracted and, and so forth and so on, I've learned that there's a flip side to this. A lot of the things that mm -hmm. we think, this is how I wish my brain worked. I wish I had a better this. I wish, you know, this and that and the other happened are 
are important, that they're features and not bugs. And so, you know, this is the space I'm trying to create with my book is that understand the costs and benefits of these different ways that brains have of functioning and that there are a lot of places in this different space that don't map onto better or worse, just different. It's so interesting. This is something that has, uh, that I've been interested in and, and frustrated by, frankly, for, for a long time. I remember, you know, when I went to school, which was, I, I think, not long before you went to school, I'm in my 50s. The latent assumption was that there was a single axis of intelligence, right? right? There was a single yardstick by which every child was mm -hmm. measured. Uh, and, and my high school class was ranked from one to 72. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. and we everybody had class rank, and and so I think most everyone had this perception of themselves as being, you know, very smart, kind of smart, or not so smart. Right, right. <laughs> right? You existed right. somewhere on this axis, and this always struck me as a as a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, because the people at the top felt smug and unappreciative of the unique <laughs> offerings of everyone else, and and but probably secretly insecure because they knew that their brains had problems right. as well, as you say that that we all like. I think every Homo sapien has frustrations with their brains, oh, right? Yes. And and people at the bottom of this would feel disheartened. But I've learned over the course of a couple, a few decades building companies mm -hmm. that my gosh, you need a lot of different types of people, and which means different types of brains. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of evidence that diverse groups are better at solving right. problems. This is like emergent in, in, in the world of business and, and in academic settings. And this causes me to wonder, if you look at the field of sports, right? In basketball, it's advantageous to be tall. In, gym, in gymnastics, it's a liability to be tall. I can tell you from experience. <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> um, I, I used to be a swimmer. And it turns out I was not a phenomenal swimmer. I was an okay swimmer, probably partly because of an attitude problem. But it was partly, I think, because I did not have the ideal swimmer's body, which turns out to, to be uh, a body with very long feet, effectively flippers. It's like the Michael Phelps body. Knees that bend backwards, which delivers a more powerful flutter kick. And a long trunk, a long torso, which results in better flotation. Right. And, and so you can probably go through every single sport and figure out what body type would be ideal for that sport. But the kicker is that, you know, we have in our minds this sort of notion of like what the what the ideal athletic frame is. But there's actually no ideal body type for the purpose of of competing in all sports. And as a consequence, it seems highly desirable to live in a world of people with lots of different body types. And I think the same would apply to brain types. Is that It's a right? perfect yeah. metaphor. And you know, what I've said in the past is like, take the average height in this room. For me, I'm the only person in this room right now. So it's five, six and a half. I used to give myself the extra half inch. But you know, if you take a, a room full of people and talk about the average height, that number might not actually describe any person in the room, which is kind of where neuroscience has gone. And so some of my own research early on has shown that what we thought was true of how brains work was actually what you get when you mush together two really different ways of behaving and that no individual in the group actually looked like the group average. So number one is that the mean might not describe any person. And then mm, if you say, yeah. okay, well, like, let's say five, seven, is that, okay, this is the average height. Is that the optimal height? Well, it depends on if you're going to go on an international flight or if you're going to try and play basketball, right? Like, <laughs> it, and I think <laughs> yes, the brains yes. are like that. It, 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 you know, 
some of the things that you find frustrating about your brain might actually be the flip side of the best thing about your brain. And, you know, it just depends on what kind of problem you're asking it to solve. Yes. And I can tell you as somebody who's six foot three, that it's great to be very tall in in crowded concert, you know, public <laughs> environments. And it really is not nice on yes, airplanes. Exactly, <laughs> right. Exactly. So there's a, it really feels to me like equal parts, good and bad, you know, this really, um now if we accept that there's no such thing as a typical brain, it begs the question, why did we evolve to have such diverse brain types? Mm. And, and, and I know, of course, we always want to be careful when we speculate about human evolution, mm -hmm. but it does feel to me to be highly logical that in our ancestral environment, it would be an advantage to a given tribe to have some people who were, let's say, highly anxious and woke up easily and we're focused on all of the threats to the tribe. And so my almost perfect wife describes herself this way as being, she's, you know, can be relatively high on the anxiety threshold. And she thinks of herself as a, the watchtower woman. She's looking out for the village. She's like, you know, she has a job to do. There, there might be some folks who are obsessive compulsive and love to weave baskets. Mm -hmm. there might, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm being a little reckless here, no. but I mean, but you, you see, you, but, and I also think of the absent-minded professors. <laughs> I think now I'm thinking of Gilligan's <laughs> Island. I don't know if you're, yes, of course. Uh, you know, the absent-minded professor who, 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 who loves to solve problems and invent things, but is, is quite absent-minded and ineffectual in other right. areas. Yeah. Right. And, and, and which I think of as the ADHD brain and that one could, that, cause I have some of that myself, Yeah, but maybe that's a flattering interpretation, <laughs> but what do you think? Do you think there's a, I mean, is this reckless to speculate that there, there may have been advantages to having uh, for early humans to have had a, a variety of different brain types? I don't, I mean, I guess there's some kind of recklessness in all speculation, but I can't imagine the alternative, like not thinking about this. For instance, in my book, I talk about what does it mean to be abnormal and how sometimes when we're talking about something like ADHD, we're calling this a dysfunction, but it's not particularly atypical. So depending on, you know, it might be like one in six or one in 10 or one in 12, depending mm -hmm. on the statistics you look at, people in the U.S. or children in the U.S. could be diagnosed with ADHD. These are some of the estimates. They vary, but still, this is not rare. So I think that what has been called an organically driven brain or somebody whose focus of attention is easily captured by something changing in the environment, I can definitely imagine why it's good to have one in 10 of those in your group noticing something that you don't expect to find, noticing something that you're not looking for in your quest for whatever, right? So we have been a collaborative communal social animal for a long time in evolution. So we're working together in teams and having people with different w types of information processing, somebody who's really good at navigation, somebody who's really good at communication, somebody who's really good at sticking to the plan and somebody who's really good yes, at deviating yes. from the plan. Like it, it makes a lot of sense to me that there are reasons to have different kinds of information processing in social groups. Now, here's something that's also interesting about this. When it's a, your family, and you were talking about your wife, and I talk a lot about my husband, who's also a cognitive neuroscientist and who's really different from me in a lot of ways, Yeah, yeah. Um, which is awesome. But when it's your partner, when it's these evolutionarily important relationships, like a mm -hmm. pair bond or a ch parent-child relationship, or a tribe, your brain gives you 
oxytocin. It gives you a chemical boost that motivates you to understand these differences, right? Like who could be more different brain-wise than a parent and a child? But we don't think like this crappy little baby is making all of these poor, poor decisions. I have I have occasionally <laughs> yeah, had that thought. Me I have too. To admit, me but, too. Yeah. but but thankfully, our brains give us this boost. What oxytocin does is it increases the reward value on social cues. Yeah. But this doesn't motivate us to understand strangers or outgroup. In fact, the limited research in this area suggests that oxytocin enhances your feeling of sameness or mm. togetherness with your family and the other with people who are not who you do not consider to be in your tribe. So I think a really important sort of pivot point from that, why did we evolve that way, is how can we motivate ourselves to understand people who work differently if they're not in our evolutionary important relationship? So when we go back to teams and think, you know, it might be like somebody you get on your team in the school project or somebody who's on your team at work. And even though... It is advantageous to have people who work really differently working together on teams. It's also really important that these people can understand and appreciate their differences. And that's not always easy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I and I consider it to be one of the gifts of kind of aging, mm-hmm. you know, is is that it does much in the way that that many of us our palates expand in terms of the foods that we mm-hmm. like. You know, I went sort of first to this place of saying, you know what? I've realized that I can learn from people mm-hmm. who I don't necessarily like. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful. <laughs> and then, and then, so that was sort of step one. And then step two was, I can come to really like people who I would not previously have liked. Yes, <laughs> right. And that's and that's and that really is about building a bridge across difference, and it's a process, and and it's a it's a learned behavior. It seems it like it is a it, learned behavior, say. and I think that was the coolest thing. The last chapter of my book, you know, I'm skipping way ahead, but, you know, a large part of my motivation was this, you know, in 2016, the political climate just caught fire and everybody was unfriending everybody. And it struck me that at the same time that we were talking more and more about the importance of having diverse opinions in our decision making spaces, we were like unfriending everybody who believed differently than we do and like not necessarily getting better at talking through our differences. And of course, what is diversity if it isn't coming from a different perspective, coming from a different set of life experiences, having brains that understand the world in different ways? And so my goal was actually to give some concrete scientific data about how different brains interpret, understand, and decide in the Mm -hmm. world And give people the tools for doing this really difficult reverse engineering process that we have to do if we want to know somebody. Yes. And I think the coolest thing that I learned in my research, because I study cognition, I almost always do research at the level of the individual. That's what I'm interested in. Um, Mm -hmm. But the social neuroscience that I learned was so fascinating. And in particular, this ability to understand someone else who really has a different point of view than you do, a different perspective, a different way of behaving. People call this theory of mind, but theory of mind has been used to explain a lot of different things. Like the way I like to think about it is this is understanding another person in the same way you might understand something like quantum physics that you cannot possibly observe or most people don't observe 
or even like the planetary orbits, you build a mental model of how somebody else works. And this is entirely learned. So I quoted in my book, a behavioral genetic study yes. done on twins, over a thousand pairs of twins, yeah. over 2,000 so yeah. five-year-olds that showed that the similarities between twins have, you know, nearly identical genes or monozygotic twins and twins that share, you know, 50% of their genes, the similarity and their ability to make inferences about other people's minds was exactly the same. It was entirely chalked up to their shared environment. And this is like, I mean, you see behavior, you know, if you study genetics or if you read about it, it feels like everything is heritable. Yes. Right. It, fe it feels like there are ever greater encroachments of, of the power of the genetic side of the equation. So it's, it's exciting to see evidence that like this is this really important higher level skill. And it is a skill opposed to uh, an innate capability. That's right. And I also think that like we give a lot of credibility to things like empathy, feeling with somebody. And I think that that's a really important capability, too. But I think that empathy well, at least some of our emerging neuroscience work suggests that empathy arises from these mirror neurons, which work really well when somebody else is like you. When your brain understands someone else. So if you see somebody experiencing pain and you feel pain, social neuroscience suggests that that feeling is moderated by things like race, gender, whatever group membership that you use and consider for your identity. So this kind of feeling with, which is a powerful automatic way of understanding others, may be the thing that drives us to be friends with other people whose brains work like ours, which again is, is a powerful and important way of connecting, but it's not going to get us, I think, where we all want to be, which is having compassion or growing an understanding of somebody who really doesn't work like we do. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Your point that we that we change and we evolve, both both in the cycle of a given day and over the course of our lifetimes, it, you know, is is I think so important. And uh, you know, when we think of, uh, you know, the next big idea club is obviously all about world changing ideas and books that move people at scale. One of those books I think of is Carol Dweck's Growth Mindset, which I think of as one of the most influential books of the last several decades. I think most of our listeners are familiar with it, but the thesis simply put is if you believe you can grow your powers of cognition, you're much more likely to do so. Um, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said that that book was instrumental in putting in place the cultural changes that turned around the company, right? Mm -hmm. So incredibly powerful mm -hmm. stuff. But but to me, the, the, the question has been, well, it's great to believe that something is true, that we can change, that we can grow, we can have a growth mindset. 
But it helps a lot if there's evidence that it is true. Right, totally. <laughs> right? If, it's back, if it's backed up, you know, uh, it's not just Dumbo the Flying Elephant's magic feather, <laughs> right. that there's neuro neuroscientific literature that supports this. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, we've all been reading about brain plasticity and uh, and I think there is mounting evidence of this. It's, it's now been 15 years since Growth Mindset was published. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, to what degree do you think the evidence of neuroplasticity has, has continued to strengthen in, in recent years? I mean, to me, it's, it's non-controversial. Our, our, and, and there are different brain areas that have different degrees of plasticity throughout the lifespan, but our brain is ever evolving. So, I mean, I think that the idea of neuroplasticity continued neuron growth throughout the lifespan is to me, it's uncontroversial. I think there's something else to the growth mindset that kind of speaks back to what I was saying about ADHD and what stories people tell about that. And it, and it relates to our brains. And that is that when it comes to self-awareness, I'm always like, I, I, my husband and I have these deep conversations about who knows whom better. Do I know myself better? Clearly, most people would say, like, of course, you know yourself better because you have mm -hmm. privilege mm -hmm. of your internal conscious awareness. You know what your mm -hmm. mind is like, the mind that is driving these behaviors. But in fact, we're only consciously aware of a little bit of what drives our behavior. And when we tell ourselves a story, so I talk in the book about the interpreter and this part of your brain that in most people is in the left hemisphere near the language region that's kind of doing a running narrative about why you're doing what you're doing or like cause and effect explaining, you know, sequences of events and so forth and so on. But we tell ourselves stories about what we're like, what we're capable of, um, what kind of person we are, why we do what we do. And it's all based on inferences that our own brains are making based on the conscious part of what's driving our behavior. So then when your partner who just observes your behavior and makes an inference about your behavior based on their observations without this kind of bias toward what's happening in your mind, when they come to a different conclusion... Who's really right? I mean, I think it's a, an interesting question. So, you know, part of the growth mindset is like, what story are you telling yourself? And how does that story that you tell yourself change the decisions that you make? I think it's right. really interesting right. to, you know, in this space where we're talking about how different brains understand the world in different ways, to, to realize that the connecting, your brain connects the dots in everything from what color you perceive a dress to be to whether you think you're extroverted or introverted or, you know, like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. positive, yeah, 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 if you're yeah. a glass half full or a glass half empty, you know, like there's a lot of connecting the dots that are happening. And so, I don't know, I think that's yeah, an interesting yeah. part of that story. And these these stories that we tell ourselves are powerful. And we also, dramatically, this is something we've covered on this podcast, really underestimate how much our, our personalities change over the decades of our lives, mm -hmm. right? That, there, that there's a lot of evidence that people's personalities change meaningfully. And if we tell ourselves a story that you're not good at something, that story itself may or may not be true of your current self, but you can make it true of your future self, mm -hmm. right? right? Because because we do have these these plastic brains, and 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 if we want to change them, we have to decide to do that, and that requires some faith in our capacity to do so. Right, and I think that you know when you 
tell yourself a story, I'm not good at X, it guides, it becomes a part of your knowledge and a part of your knowledge guides your attention. And so then you notice the things that are consistent with your story. And, you know, you were asking about plasticity. And the other thing that I just want to talk about is the pandemic. And, you know, I talk about that in the book when I was writing about how I think the most quintessential thing of all human brains is that rather than being born with a bunch of hardwired instincts, we're born with powerful learning mechanisms that allow us to adapt Mm -hmm. continuously to our environment. And just like, you know, I remember because I was writing the book during the pandemic when my lab manager said, so we're all going to go home for March. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen, you know? And then it was like, after, you know, years of being at home or a year of being at home, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to wear pants, like not just sweats, you know, that that we adapted to this new way of being. All of us, many of us, you know, had changes that were large. Some people had changes that were smaller than others, but all of us adapted and all of us feel some kind of whiplash at the return to new normal. So, I mean, the pandemic is a really, I think it's a really salient and shared experience, though it didn't look the same in every person. Everyone's life's changed and you can intuit how your comfort zone and how what you enjoyed and how your personality and how your decisions changed when the world changed around us. And, you know, for many of us, we were adults. Yeah, we are these just extraordinarily adaptable organisms. And, you know, thinking about that adaptability and brain plasticity, I was really surprised by the nuance that you added to the study of London taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. It's this very intensive process to become a a certified London taxi driver. You have to go through, what is it called? Is it the learning? The knowledge. The knowledge. The the knowledge. (laughs) Capital T, capital K. I love it. The knowledge. And only half of the people who go through two years of study actually actually pass the test. And and they'd done this extraordinary study showing that the amygdalas, turns out the tail of the amygdala of London taxi drivers. I'm sorry. Thank you. It's another, it's very, it's, they touch. So the, the tail of the hippocampus was meaningfully larger in London taxi drivers who had, had spent years learning this knowledge, capital K, of the streets of London. And this was associated with spatial memory. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't know mm-hmm. was, was two things. One is that subsequent studies proved that it wasn't that the people who passed selected for people who already had this capability. They actually grew. I mean, they, they later did studies that showed that they actually grew this part of their hippocampus in the process of studying, mm-hmm. right? This was actually like a part of your brain growing in real time. But then the flip side is that it had the result of causing the head of the hippocampus to become smaller, which may have resulted in a contraction of other capabilities. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I getting that's that right? right. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and then when they put, I thought the coolest thing is when they put the taxi drivers and the bus drivers in this sort of literal head-to-head competition and, and tested their memory, there were things that the bus drivers were better at, like remembering new lists of words or novel figures. They were better than the taxi drivers in some things. And then the taxi drivers were better at like recognizing landmarks or estimating the distance between spaces in London and these things that they had sort of become highly specialized for. And then, of course, there's a huge host of things that they were the same at, like remembering stories or faces. But there was a measurable cost. And I think that's, 
you know, it's not the part of the story most people hear, like taxi drivers have bigger brains or, you know. It's so extraordinary. And it's an example of how adaptable human brains are, our ability to specialize and and develop new cognitive capabilities. But the idea that there there is, is at least in some cases, a zero-sum game. Like right. we, we don't have, you know, there's this myth that we only use 10% yeah. of our brains. Not, not, not true. true. <laughs> right. We have like a, a finite amount of gray matter. Uh, it's precious. Right. And, and, and this seems, would support the idea that it's not simply that we're all born with different brain types, but it's also that we specialize in different areas and develop different capabilities, sometimes at the expense of others. You know, on the subject of sort of the limitations, you, you also say that as we age, our brains become less malleable, more set in their ways, quicker to jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm. And I think you say this has something to do with how our brains convert our lived experiences into mental shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you describe that process? Well, I mean, it's a it's an epically large process, but essentially, as we start to develop expertise in the kinds of experiences we're exposed to, for instance, language. Language is a really good um, example of this. And Patricia Cool, my mentor and friend and colleague at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, showed this really convincingly. When an infant is born, they can hear all of the sounds that are producible in any human language and discriminate between them. By six months of age, as they start to get more and more experience with fewer and fewer of those sounds, their brains develop more real estate for learning about the sounds that they're going to use. And you stop being able to hear, to perceive those differences in the languages that you're not exposed to. So these like early sensory processes kind of get locked in really early. But then our more conceptual processes continue to grow throughout the lifespan. But you have to think about statistics, right? So like how influential is each experience if your brain has been hardwired by 180 days of life or like 90,000 days of life, your each experience adds less and less to the sort of wiring of your brain. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. those wires is sort of when things are happening around you at the same time, when neurons are firing at the same time, the connections between them grow. If A and B virtually always happen at the same time, your brain will form a shortcut so that if you only see A, it assumes B happened and it fills in the blank. That's the way that it figures out what's going on because your brain doesn't ever, can't ever take in all the pieces of information. And, and it's a shortcut with this beautiful, heavy insulation called myelin, mm-hmm. right? Or myelination, mm-hmm. right? That causes it to be extremely fast right. too. And I, I love this observation that when we read, you know, I, I mean, for anybody listening right now, if we flash in front of your eyes a word, you can't not read it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's uh, you you cannot choose to only see letters or somehow just see them as abstract symbols. It appears as a word with meaning, and, and it happens so instantly that you don't even have the option about opting out. And that's that's a very powerful tool, but it also is a, a, a it's hardwired, right? Exactly, and so like that. Those are some parts of some of how we learn is by forming these hardwired connections. When we have a complex skill like learning to drive or learning to read. It takes hours and hours, hundreds, thousands of hours to practice. But once it becomes 
a routine in the brain. And once you get these, you know, myelinated or sort of Ethernet like cables connecting different parts of the brain, then it's non-interruptible and non-flexible, which is sometimes great and sometimes bad. That's a great like example of costs and benefits, right? When things have become automatic, it's wonderful because it's easy and you can walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. But when things become automatic, they're inflexible and you can't say like, I'm just going to read every other letter or I'm just going to name the color that the meaning of a word comes for free after thousands and thousands of hours of staring at a squiggly line. So if we want to behave flexibly, we need noisier, more effortful control systems in the brain. And we have those too. Aging is complicated and out of my area of expertise. But what I can tell you is this. One thing that tends to happen with age, and I feel like I'm living this right now. So, you know, 47 years old, I actually had to think about how old I am. We're talking about my long-term memory here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I just published my first book. Everything that has come from that is has been so, I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea what I'm doing. But as we age, we get less and less opportunities to put ourselves out of our comfort zone, to experience mm-hmm. something new. Mm-hmm. But that, yep. that experience of being in a situation that you're not prepared for is exactly the kind of plasticity-inducing learning that will help your brain continue to stay adaptable and plastic and and flexible and changing with your environment. So if we instead like sort of reduce our our comfort zone and reduce the amount of experiences we have to things that are very routinized and things that we understand very well and have a lot of experience with, then your brain gets inflexible. It's like I am not hearing new sounds in a language. I'm not I'm not experiencing new countries or tasks or whatever. I think I have mastered the skills I need to know to survive in this environment. And that shuts down learning. And and there is some erosion of just raw horsepower oh, yeah. as we get older, right? There's, you know, in terms of just speed and 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 uh, memory. But, but there are individual differences. And you know, that's, I mean, we know this, we know there are people who are like super agers. The question is just what is going on there? Is it genetics? Is it, you know, are they eating a Mediterranean diet? Like what's happening? So in uh, one of the studies that I talk about in my book was, I, I believe the first author was Clark and it was a very large study that looked at this kind of slowing down of mental processes, reduction in working memory, and slowing down of um, neural rhythms that happens across the lifespan. So I think they went like up into the 80s and had younger kids as well. And I remember looking at that graph. And actually, if you look at the 65-year-olds in that, there was a graph in the paper. I didn't put it in the book. The 65-year-old age group had both the fastest neural rhythm and the slowest of this whole, like, from, like, 10 to 80. There was a lot of variability there. So, like, if you, again, if you look at the average across groups of people, Mm, we slow down and, and this and that and the other. But there are really different trajectories and individuals. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is something we talked about with Arthur C. Brooks. He had a wonderful, wonderful book about about the as you get older, this kind of raw mental horsepower erodes, but your crystallized intelligence and kind of the the long term memory and 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 the, the the wisdom and 
quantity of information you have access to grows and that that confers certain advantages. But I love this secondary point, which is you don't necessarily have to. I mean, it does seem that lifestyle is highly correlated with some, with, with some of these changes mm-hmm. and, and that exercise. I, I, I hate it when my mother's right, Chantel. <laughs> not that she's not wonderful, and I, but she just happened to be right about most everything. And so I finally was like, oh, God, I guess you're right. I have to exercise every day. <laughs> yep. You know, it took me a very long time to decide to exercise every day. But I I now just, it, it's so apparent to me that my brain functions better. Right. And classically, you have the geeks who say, oh, I'm really about my brain, not my body, so I don't exercise. Right. And it's like, well, if you care about yeah, your brain, brain is part of your you body. actually do. I mean, <laughs> and, 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 and brain health, there's an argument that brain health for most of us in, in the modern world is more important than any other form of health. And we don't tend to think of it that way, that we really should be thinking about like the health of our mm-hmm. brain. And, and I believe it to be true that both diet and exercise has a pretty profound impact there. Absolutely. It's it's 100% true. And I would also add that exercising your brain directly by yes. trying new things, even if it's trying to understand someone who works differently, I think as we get older and wiser and more crystallized, as the sort of metaphor suggests, it's harder, I think, to do something that makes you feel, and especially as your like physical capabilities and mental capabilities do start deteriorating and you feel self-conscious and things like that. It's harder and harder, I think, to put yourself out of your comfort zone, but um, mental exercise or um, it, it, you know changing your experiences, I think also keeps your brain guessing, keeps it adapting. It's like, I don't know how to behave in this circumstance. That engages the learning mechanisms, which is really cool. I mean, another thing that we haven't talked about at all is curiosity. And Mm, curiosity is triggered by a situation in which you can't predict what's going to happen next. Either your prediction failed miserably or you just have never been in this situation before. And then what's cool is that if you feel curious, it's a symptom that your brain has already decided that there's information rewards in this environment. Your brain is trying to, is giving you dopamine to motivate you to explore this new situation. You know, one of the things that just kind of, I kept bumping into in the process of reading your book is something that maybe is self-evident to any neuroscientist, which is that all human conscious experience is a drug experience, mm. right? It's mm-hmm. a drug cocktail in our brains. It's, I mean, I mean, we, we run on, on, on neurochemicals. And so, if you go running, you know, you're having a different neurological experience. It's a kind of drug experience. I, I was delighted to encounter the information about massage. And yes. <laughs> that, that receiving a massage seems to have some really great impacts on increases, I think, dopamine and serotonin. And But as I think you put it, we are our brain chemistry, right? right? And everything that we do and experience is obviously, you know, a direct consequence of our brains and our, and our neurochemistry. And, and that, that's sort of self-evident, but I, I, I thought of you when you write about that, I think you say that you've seen your brain in real time in an MRI machine. Mm-hmm. And that, what, what's that, what's that experience like? You know, I've seen my brain with all the machines. <laughs> um, it's very surreal because I think that is me. I think that my sense of identity, the things that are important to me are in that walnut (laughs) looking thing. And so much of what we focus on 
is the body, is what other people see, my face, you know, or, you know, I'm female. Um, and actually, uh, John Amici was in a podcast with Adam Grant, and he said he was talking about um, Adam said, do people get surprised when they see what you look like? You know, you have this British mm. accent and all of these things. And he's a large black man. And he mm. talks about like, you know, putting, you know, books in the background and wearing a beard and all of the things that can change people's idea of him. And he said, these are all the things I have to do t- because people are distracted by the case that carries my brain. Oh, interesting. And that just, you know, the, obviously it was a deeper conversation about racism and and prejudice and expectations based on how you look. But that like just hit me like an arrow because to me, I mean, of course our brains are part of our bodies and of course our bodies are part of our identities. Our bodies shape so much of the way other people treat us, but our brains are storing all of that information and using it to to guide our future decisions and and the stories that we tell ourselves. So, you know, when I look at my brain, I think that's what I really look like. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the next big idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a Book Bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the Next Big Idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. You open the book with a section about our lopsided brains and the difference between the left and right hemisphere, which is just fascinating. And we have this kind of conventional way of talking about the left brain being analytical and the right brain being creative, which it sounds like is somewhat of an oversimplification. Uh, You also describe the left brain as as a prediction engine Mm -hmm. and the right brain as focused on understanding the world as it is, mm-hmm. which is which is super interesting. How is is that second description closer to reality? How, yes. how would you describe so it? So this is the left brain, right brain thing is something that is kind of like, I think the stake I'm going to die on because I think it's so important that um, mm. first, saying I'm a left brain, right brain type is one of the most common things that people say to acknowledge that we don't all work the same, right? It's like one of the Mm -hmm. most widely discussed brain differences. I think we all understand that we don't work the same way, but we don't really have the language to talk about what it means. So I think that Mm -hmm. that left brain, right brain thing is based in some parts of reality and some truths, but it is not correct. So it, it arose from this idea 
actually the left brain analytical, right brain creative thinker arose from the work that Roger Sperry, Mike Gazaniga, and colleagues did on patients that had actually had the center of their brain severed to control intractable epilepsy. Essentially, when you sever the two hemispheres of the brain, you really start to notice how many people have two different perspectives right inside their own heads. So it's so wild. It's so yeah. wild. And, you know, when these patients have their brains severed, most people will tell you they function just fine, but it's not exactly true. I mean, at least in the beginning, they move through life and their two hands are demonstrating different desires. So Vicky is one of the patients that they wrote about, would go to her closet and she would think she wanted to say she wanted to wear her black pants and a red sweater. And her right hand would be behaving in a way that was consistent with what she felt or what she was saying she wanted to do. But her left hand would grab something else. And she would kind of, her hands would be like kind of wrestling for control of her behavior. The right hemisphere had its own desires. The right hemisphere is controlling the left hand, but she can't talk about it. And what's wild is like, what is your experience? Can we only, are we only consciously aware of the things that we can talk about? So Gazaniga would ask people to mm, do right, things right. based on information that was in the different hemispheres. But then when they would talk about it, in most people, speech is controlled primarily by the left hemisphere. So when they would talk about it, the left hemisphere would make up a story about why the right hemisphere did what it did. And it would be kind of a plausible story. Like you show them a picture of a sun to the left hemisphere and like a sand timer to the right hemisphere. And the, the left hemisphere says, I saw the sun. And then you give them something, a pencil in the left hand and the right hemisphere draws a timer. And then you ask them, well, why'd you draw a timer if you saw the sun? And they say, oh, it was a sundial. I was thinking about a sundial. So this this interpreter part of the brain, what Gazaniga called the interpreter, is constantly making inferences about cause and effect. It's storytelling. And that's where the analytical hemisphere was born. It turns out that part of the brain does a lot of cause and effect and, you know, trying to connect mm -hmm. sequences of things. It's the most astounding study. I, I you know, I, so some of our listeners probably have heard of this one before, but it, it just... It drove home to me this question of whether, you know, uh, just the complexity of what's going on in our brains and the speed at which we automatically generate stories oh, yeah. to explain things that are not explainable. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just an automated mechanism. Um, and and so in, in this ex in this example of someone whose hemispheres are separated. We can say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is someone who has a, you know, a, a kind of cognitive uh, limitation, but it, it's a demonstration of what our brain is constantly doing and right. <laughs> which results in, which results in us kind of immediately uh, telling ourselves stories about what's happening around us in a way that, as you point out, is very impressive. Mm -hmm. And very convincing. But completely convincing and often wrong. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> right. And we're constantly operating on incomplete information. I mean, if you have uh, typical hearing and vision, you open your eyes, you look around you and you perceive the world like a continuous, dynamic, whole, uninterrupted universe. 
And so much of that is your brain filling in the blanks. In fact, you're taking in, you know, a fraction of the information that's out there and you're taking it in in these discrete bite-sized chunks and your brain is just connecting the dots so quickly and so automatically that we rarely ever even notice when things are ambiguous or when things are confusing or when we don't, you know, when we don't have enough information to figure out why we're doing what we're doing. And and the storytelling part of our brain, sure, like our left and right hemispheres are intact. But once again, going back to that, what does it mean to know someone? Like you're still largely unaware of so much of what drives your behavior. You know, like, at, you know, I think about your brain is watching you behave largely implicitly, automatically, and some small, smaller part in a controlled, goal-oriented, mindful way. But it's telling you, it's giving you the illusion that like all of your behavior is controlled by, you know, like, I know why I did this. It was all intentional. I was aware of all of these things. That that interpreter thing is happening in our brains all the time. And one thing that I think is really cool is the fact that the verbal interpreter doesn't happen to everybody. So that's one of the mind-blowing things that I learned about my husband. And I think like Temple Temple Grandin wrote a book, Thinking Visually, and she, you know, at first erroneously thought that all people with autism think in pictures. It's not true. It's true of her. It's true of my husband who does not have autism. It's true of certain, you know, group of people don't this sort of internal dialogue is not a dialogue. It's images. And that blows my mind. And that must be related to how the two hemispheres work in different people. But that for me is like, you know, that's something we're getting an experiment up online very soon to kind of dig into that a little bit more. It's so interesting. And and I think the way your husband put it, was that verbal thinkers experience consciousness as a as a podcast, mm-hmm. right? It's a it's a narration of words. And this is how I experience me consciousness. Too. Like I I think I think in words, I it never occurred to me that anyone could have any other experience. But he says visual thinkers have an experience of consciousness that's more like Netflix on mute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? that's Which is how he described it. Totally foreign to me. Right? It's wild to me too because uh, you know, like even thinking about like I as I start to wake up, my brain does a lot of problem solving in the like twilight when I'm just starting to wake up, which I think is interesting and has yeah. also been shown to be related to changes in the dominance of your two hemispheres, which is wild. But I'm so thankful. My brain like does problem solving; it works on things while I'm asleep. And so as I start to wake up, I'll start to yes. hear ideas kind of like looping around in my mind and science ideas or whatever relationship ideas, like they'll start to just be working their way in. And when I asked him, like, you're having an idea, a theory or something like that, like, what does that look like? And for him, he'll say PowerPoints. Like, so cool. It's just, yeah. Well, in an effort to land the airplane, Chantal, because <laughs> I know we're getting, we're getting close to the end here. You know, we spoke at the beginning about the challenges of knowing people who have brains that are different from ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've clearly, with the help of some oxytocin, um, <laughs> overcome that challenge with your wonderful husband. That's right, <laughs> right? that's right. And it's, and it's been helpful to have the oxytocin, right? A little love, a little love helps right. uh, positively reinforce that empathy and understanding. But you, know, you have this great description of like how 
we tend to be attracted to people whose brains are similar to ours and and it's and part of it is 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 very understandable it's just much easier for us to understand them mm-hmm. and to predict how they're going to react mm-hmm. through neural mimicry which just comes naturally it takes no processing power mm-hmm. whereas creating a model for people with very different brains as you, which you liken to you know trying to understand quantum mechanics like things that we can't see mm-hmm. or even imagine mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's this it's incredible hard exertion and yet the rewards are so great is that sort of the part of the thrust of of, of what you want to leave readers and listeners with is is that it's it, it's worth the effort to understand these other brains and and appreciate uh the the different kind of strengths and and the beauty of their uh of what they have to offer yes i think it's worth the effort it might not be rewarding in the way I think it is intellectually rewarding and curiosity-driven rewarding. I think that you will understand yourself differently when you realize that this is just one, one way of being. And I think that it doesn't necessarily, you know, the word reward is something that means something very specific to me in, in terms of neuroscience. And that's like, it doesn't necessarily feel good at first, right? Because you're not able to predict this person. And what I think, you know, when we go back to curiosity and dopamine is that if you're looking at someone who works differently than you, and it makes you feel threatened about your own way of being, that shuts down curiosity and that willingness to explore and do the work that you talked about it very, very eloquently when you're like, I've learned that somebody I don't like, I can come to appreciate and even like and even learn from that process, that effort. I think there's something at the center of that, which is about confidence and your understanding of yourself. And what I hope is that if people can appreciate all of the storytelling that every brain does And start with the assumption that there's a little bit of fact and a little bit of fiction in everybody's reality. Can you become curious about a brain and a mind that work differently from yours without feeling threatened about your way of being? And that's what I really hope that my book will leave people with. Well, it, it left me with both a greater sense of awe before the power of the human brain, and, and at the same time, a greater sense of humility mm-hmm. around <laughs> the the the, uh, the 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 somewhat eccentric ways in which our individual brains function. Well, Rufus, that means that your brain and my brain are ending on a very similar note because I feel nothing more than awe and humility at every turn in this adventure of learning about people's brains. Amazing. <laughs> well. Chantel, I cannot wait to continue to follow your your research and career. And I, I thought it might be fun to leave our listeners with one little exercise, just in the in the category of the awe before the human brain. And, and I think the easiest one, maybe for for a podcast environment, was this one of rotating your right foot in a clockwise direction. I love it. I would have picked that. This just. It blew me away. It blew me away. You, you want to you share with our listeners how to do sure. that? Sure. This is a, an exercise that shows you why we are all chemicals, why our brains are just drug processors. Chemicals are the language that our brains use to communicate and to keep track of overlapping signals. So 
I can take you through an exercise where you can watch the chemical signaling being hijacked in your brain. So take. Okay, I'm 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 going to do, do this it. with you, okay, Chantal. Let's do I'm, it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the third time. I, I, I it's, it's so amazing to me. I, I'd like to do okay, it again. Okay, great, awesome. So take your dominant foot. For me, I'm right footed, and start to take it in a clockwise circle, round and around. Now take the same hand. I'm doing it too, by the way. If I start talking slowly, it's because I can't walk, talk, and rotate my ankle at the same time. So now take the same hand. So for me, I'm going to take my right hand and draw a big number six in the air. And what you'll (laughs) probably find is that your foot, your hand program will hijack your foot. And for me, I mean, they were perfectly in sync. My foot came around at the moment that my the bubble in my six connected back to the stick on the top, and your your foot will start moving in opposite direction with your hand. And I tried I tried so hard this time to not let that happen. You know, I I tried to keep my foot rotating clockwise, and it just instantly flips in the reverse direction. It's and so what's what's happening there? What's happening is that the motor program, the hand. There's a lot more real estate in the hand area of the brain than the leg area of the brain. But when you send a motor program to control the part of the brain that moves your hand, it's actually leaking on, gossiping in to your foot area. So it's overriding the first program and kind of bleeding in. That's why, you know, this sort of flexibility that says, I just let you, I just instructed you to do something you've probably never done in your life. You've used language to follow instructions to behave flexibly. That's really cool. But it creates a lot of gossip and noise in the brain as compared to what we were talking about earlier is like word reading. That's highly encapsulated with white matter. It's highly automatic, but you can't not read a word. So that's kind of the counter of these two different ways of communicating in the brain. Well, it's, I, I, I definitely have an eccentric jalopy of a brain if it <laughs> operates that way. I really, <laughs> with all kinds of quirks. And I used to have a, an old sob that if I took a hard left, the horn would start erratically beeping. <laughs> And I, I've, I now feel a little bit like that's that's what I've got here, my, my brain-body combination. <laughs> well, Chantel, thank you so much for taking time out of your life to be with us. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you for having me and for exercising my brain today. That was Dr. Chantel Pratt, author of the new book, The Neuroscience of You. If you'd like to hear more from her. Oh, hey, Caleb. Hey, Rufus. I was going to tell listeners that if they want to learn more about Chantel's book, they can download the Next Big Idea app and listen to her book bite. That's where she distills the book down into five key insights, like brains of a feather flock together and people learn by carrot or stick. It's, it's really great. Our app is the only place on the planet where you can hear book summaries written and read by the authors themselves. It's a great place to get a curiosity-induced dopamine hit, like Chantel described in the interview. Download it today by going to your app store and searching for the next big idea. In addition to our app, Rufus, can you tell listeners a little bit about what you've been doing with your newsletter over on LinkedIn? Caleb, you have lobbed me a softball. I would love to tell <laughs> listeners about our newsletter on LinkedIn, which you can find by going to LinkedIn and searching for me, Rufus Griscom. 
Each week, I share my musings on the episode, my favorite moments, sometimes embarrassing family photos, but really it's an opportunity for listeners to join us in conversation. I'm so curious to hear what all of our listeners think of these episodes and how they're applying the lessons if they are to their own lives. For instance, today, like what kind of brain do you have? Do you find yourself attracted to people with, with similar brains? After these conversations, as you know, Caleb, I tend to be itching to discuss the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think of this show as a, as a chance to spark curiosity and inspire conversation amongst listeners, and we'd love to be part of that conversation. And LinkedIn is a great place to do that. So yeah, follow Rufus Griscom on LinkedIn, subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, there's a link to it in our episode notes as well. Today's show was written and produced by you, Caleb. Nicely done. Thank you, though I give a lot of credit to our brilliant sound designer on this episode, Mike Toda. And we can't forget our executive producer, Michael Kovnat. The folks at the LinkedIn Podcast Network are so smart that they can keep their ankles turning to the right while drawing sixes in the air. Unbelievable. <laughs> Next week, our curator, Adam Grant, will be in the hosting seat talking with debating champion, Bo So, about the art and science of communication and persuasion. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you then.